We're reading David's psalm, Psalm 7, which is on page 545 of the Church Pew Bibles. That's page 545. Psalm 7. A Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Lord, my God, if I have done this, and there is guilt on my hands, if I have repaid my ally with evil or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather round you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring an end to the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts. My shield is God Most High, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword, he will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons, he makes ready his flaming arrows. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. And so we're back in the Psalms. I think we're taking a break from Romans. Um, and we've landed at Psalm 7, which I assume means that we've had sermons on Psalms 1 to 6 at some point. But I don't think I was here when that happened. So uh, here we are in Psalm 7. But I want to start by telling you about something that happened when I was 15. It's a little bit of a confession. You see, I prayed for my teacher. And you may be thinking, wow, Matthew, what a wonderful, uh, holy and devoted child you were. But hold on, because you see, this was a teacher that no one liked. I wonder if anyone else has had a teacher that they didn't like or that no one else liked. She was really old school. She'd patrol the corridors, dishing out detentions to anyone whose shirt was untucked or whose tie was a little bit too long. I think she slightly regretted that she was no longer able to use the cane. And rumor had it she had been banned from giving out detentions because she'd been so trigger-happy about it. And I was meant to be in a school play that she was directing. 
But she kept changing her mind about how a scene was meant to be played, where we were meant to be standing, where we were meant to be looking, how we were meant to be moving. And so one week, I turned up to rehearsal, and I tried to run the scene just as she had told us the week before. And I quickly realized that she had forgotten the instructions she gave us the week before and was expecting me to do it differently. And so I said, as politely as I knew how, I said, I'm sorry, I thought you wanted us to do it this way. And she absolutely hit the roof. And before she sh threw me out of the room, she looked at me and she said, you are the rudest little boy I have ever met. Which I suspect means she hadn't met many rude little boys, but... <laughs> or maybe I was. Well, who knows? I didn't really know what to do. So I went home and I prayed. I prayed that something bad would happen to her. <laughs> has, anyone, has anyone ever prayed a prayer like that? I feel like if we're honest, there might have been times when we've been tempted at least. I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said, pray for your enemies. But I guess it's honest. Anyway, I didn't know what I was expecting. She wasn't at school the next week. But the week after, I, I saw her. She was in the corridor. And she was wearing a neck brace. From time to time, we all find ourselves with adversaries. And maybe we feel like someone has done us an injustice or has taken against us. Maybe we feel like calling God to rain fiery arrows on a person. Someone who's wronged us. The, the writer of Psalm 7 certainly felt this way. Let's consider what it means for us to pray this psalm. Because there's parts of it which feel quite easy to pray, aren't there? Lovely parts. Save me and deliver me. Who hasn't prayed that prayer? My shield is God most high. The stakes don't feel too high to say that. And I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. That would fit very well into one of the songs or the hymns that we sing here today. But what about these verses? Vindicate me according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. If I have repaid my ally with evil, let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. How do we feel about that? And how do we feel about a God who has prepared his deadly weapons? When we pray these psalms, we enter a very different world, a world where people had a different relationship with God, a world where people had a different relationship with power, a world where people had a different relationship with violence. But it's always worth remembering that the Psalms were written and preserved as the hymn book of God's people. They were used for worship in the temple. So even if they seem to be about some very specific events and some very specific circumstances, when we pray these psalms, they shape us. 
and they shape us in all sorts of circumstances. Because through the Psalms, we can call on God, we can express our troubles, and we can realign our relationship with God. The writer of this psalm is adamant that they have done nothing to harm their enemy. They are protesting their innocence before God as a righteous judge. I do have my notes this week. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in one of those conversations where someone feels like they've been wronged. You're maybe sitting down with your friend, you're having a cup of tea, and they start ranting about something or someone who has wronged them. They're telling you all of the things, and you're sitting there nodding your head, but in your head you're thinking, I'm sure there's another side to this story. I'm sure you're not as innocent as you say you are. I'm sure that the other person, if I sat them down, would have just as much to say about you. But you're trapped, aren't you? Because if you nod along, then you look like you're just agreeing with them. But if you disagree, well, that's your friend and they're upset. The problem is that it's tempting for us to think that we've got God on our side. We're flawed, and we have this tendency to see the best in ourselves and the worst in the world around us. But here's a really good test. If you feel wronged, if you feel like someone has done something to harm you, would you pray, verses 4 to 5, would you pray, if I have guilt on my hands, let my enemy overtake me, let them trample my life to the ground? bit of a a wake-up call, I suppose. We may want a God who grants all of our wishes, who destroys all of our enemies and demands nothing of us. A God who tells us that you're always in the right, no matter what you do. But God is not our pet deity. We can't just invoke God whenever we find ourselves in a tight corner. God says the psalm, is the Lord most high. And it is right that we become before God, examining ourselves, acknowledging our failings. God probes our minds and our hearts. There is no point being anything other than real and honest with God. And then in in verse 3, the writer of this psalm says, Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is guilt on my hands, if I've done this, if I've done what? It's quite hard to unpick that, and maybe that's good. Maybe it's, it's everything that we could have done wrong there. But it might be helpful for us to look at this little thing, this what's called the uh, superscription, the bit at the beginning before verse 1. In one of my Bibles, this is verse 0. Um, and I asked Pauline to read it. It says, a shigayon. Now, a shigayon, this is, I think, the only place in the whole Bible that you will find the word shigayon. No one knows what it means. Uh, and at a best guess, it's something to do with music. It's a little bit like when you read in your hymn book and it says, to the tune of, or uh, I don't know. Like, it's, it's whatever a shigayon is, this is one of them. Uh, But it's a Shigayon of David, so it's something to do with King David. It's something to do with an event 
that happened in the life of King David, and he sang it to the Lord concerning Cush. Again, we have no idea who Cush was other than that he was a Benjamite or a Benjaminite, depending on what Bible you're reading. A Benjaminite. And that is important because someone else who was a Benjaminite was King Saul. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was the first king of Israel. And in the first book of Samuel, we can see that David, the anointed successor to the throne, has married his daughter, made a covenant with his son, and is increasingly celebrated as being the greater military leader. So Saul, who seems to be a bit of a narcissist, becomes paranoid and starts surrounding himself with an entourage of people, many of whom are also Benjaminites. And they keep urging Saul to capture David, to the point that David is forced to hide in some caves. And even later, once Saul has died and David has become king, the Benjaminites still pose a problem for David because They've got influence. And in fact, when David needs to unite the tribes of Israel, he has to specifically court the Benjaminites. Uh, and that's in uh, 2 Samuel 3, if you want to go and look it up later. Um, I wonder if you can imagine warring political factions disagreeing over who should be the leader of the nation. Nothing really changes, does it? But it seems that somewhere in the midst of all of this, David prayed this Shagayon. He called, to the, he called to God, who was the only place he was offered any refuge from Cush the Benjaminite. There's this moment in uh, 1 Samuel 24 when David actually has the opportunity to kill Saul. And, uh, well, Saul's actually going into the cave to go to the toilet. And while he's there... David sneaks up, gets a knife, or gets his sword, and cuts a little bit off Saul's garment. And it looks like he's actually going to, well, he'll probably not do it himself, but he's going to let his men kill Saul. And then he stops. It's like there's a moment where he has a realization. He's called back to his integrity. And instead of killing Saul, he waits until he's a safe distance, and he shouts, I will not raise my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. I have not sinned against you, though you are hunting me to take my life. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. May he see to it and plead my cause and vindicate me against you. You see, just like in the psalm, he is protesting his innocence before God, who is a righteous judge, calling on God to decide. We might feel, like David, that we are unjustly attacked. It's unlikely that we've got a king chasing after us, but we are by no means innocent. David is pleading his innocence in this one case, but he's not appealing to his own righteousness in a more general sense. He's not saying, look how perfect I am. He's saying, I have done nothing wrong here. 
He doesn't appeal to his own greatness. He doesn't say, I'm the anointed one. I'm a mighty warrior. I'm so popular. God, you've got to give me this one. He appeals to God not because David is righteous, not because he is righteous, but because God is righteous. And this psalm reminds us that God is the righteous judge who probes minds and hearts. If we are people who thirst after justice, then there's no point in us being the judges because we are lousy at it. We need God who is righteous to be the judge. We need to allow God to be the righteous judge. And righteousness here isn't just about being good. Righteousness is about a God who all through history is faithful. It's not that we are righteous and deserve to take refuge in God. It's God who is righteous, God who is faithful. It's only because of God's faithfulness that we can say that God is our shield most high. And for leaders like Saul and David, might and power were expressed in military terms. If you wanted to show how worthy you were, you fought a war and you won it. And God was on your side. In fact, it was a way of showing that your God was better than their gods because God was helping you more than he was helping them. And of course, God here isn't interested in only fighting David's battles. God is interested in being righteous in all circumstances. These days, we tend to talk a bit more in terms of political influence or electability. Or in our own personal lives, it's more about our own reputation or our own friendships or our own livelihood. If I say that, what will happen to my friendships? What will happen to my job? But David understands that these things don't impress God. Because no matter how popular our enemies are, no matter how many friends in high places they have, no matter how many chariots they've got, God is the one with all the flaming arrows. And I know that if I had all of that power, I would be tempted to use it to smite my enemies. Love a bit of smiting. So it's probably better if it lies with God and not with me. Because we need to ask, what does God do with all of this power? Well, in Jesus we see God lays that power down. Mercy triumphs over justice. Instead of wielding those deadly weapons in Jesus, God becomes a weapon Sorry, God becomes a victim of them. And where David professes innocence and calls on God to overcome his enemies, the writer of this, Jesus, is innocent, but he sets his innocence aside to save his enemies. The writer of this psalm calls, calls on God to use deadly weapons to rise up against the violence of the wicked. But Jesus brings an end 
to the power of violence and to the power of the wicked by becoming subject to it. The way of Jesus is to lay down our power. The righteousness of God does not look like our earthly powers, whether it's military might or political uh, uh, electability or influence, or whether it's our jobs or whether it's our uh, friendships or whether it's our reputation. The righteousness of God looks like a man who was crucified and raised to life. I don't think that God put my teacher in a neck brace. But I do think that when I saw her in a neck brace in that corridor, I was being taught something. To be aware that the God that we serve is powerful. And when we approach God, we should always examine our motives carefully. But thankfully, through the death and new life of Jesus, we are able to pray this psalm. And when we do, there is always grace. No matter who our enemies are, no matter who it is that has wronged us, even in our powerlessness, we can trust that we can take refuge in the Lord, who is most high. Let's pray. God of all shelter, we thank you that in you we can take refuge and that because of your righteousness, because of your faithfulness, because of your death and resurrection, we can seek shelter and protection in you. Be with us as we face whatever enemies or wrongs we encounter. And help us to trust in your unending goodness and power. In Jesus' name, amen.